Good morning, Cornerstone Church family. Happy Lord's Day. And um, I'm Pastor Bill, and since New York did so badly, I grew up in the Midwest in Chicago. So who is here from the Midwest? Yay! We did a little bit better than New York. Let's do it again. Let's put them to shame. Yay! Okay. All right. L.A., we're not even going to talk to you. This morning, as we begin a new sermon series here at Cornerstone called Prayers of the Bible, I want to share with you a tale of two cities. The first city is the city of Jerusalem in 446 B.C. with Nehemiah, who was a person of prayer. And then the second city will be the city of Coventry, England in 1960, that had a whole community of prayer. First city is Jerusalem in 446 BC. Nehemiah's name means comfort of Jehovah. And Nehemiah was, he tells us, the cupbearer to the king. Sounds like a glorified valet, um, but in actual effect, many times cupbearers, because they were so close to the most powerful person in the court, they very often became people of considerable influence. There's one cupbearer in the ancient Near East who actually was also the prime minister. But what the cupbearer also does is the cupbearer always tastes the wine of the king before he tastes it to make sure that it's not been poisoned. So if it's been poisoned, so long cupbearer, but long live the king. And that was Nehemiah's role with King Artaxerxes in the city of Jerusalem in 446 BC. And so what I'd like to do is, is share with you, the reason we know so much about Nehemiah is because he kept a personal journal, the book of Nehemiah, that tracked some of the most significant events in his life over a couple of decades. So listen to the first three verses of Nehemiah's journal. This is Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, that would be our mid-November to mid-December. In the 20th year, which we know is 446 BC, as I, Nehemiah, was in Susa, the citadel. Susa is on the Persian Gulf in modern-day Iran. He says, I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So a little bit of historical background, 141 years before Nehemiah chapter 1, before he started his journal, 141 years before Babylon had utterly destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And it had essentially been a, an abandoned ruin for most of the time after that. Then just 13 years before Nehemiah 1, the priest Ezra went back to Jerusalem to try to live in their ancient city. And so Nehemiah wants to know, How's it going? How is it with the exiles who are in Jerusalem? And he continues, and they, Hanani and the others with him, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So in our tale of the first city this morning, Things are really, really bad in the city of Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah's words, 
there was great trouble, shame, brokenness, destruction, and fire. Now, as I thought about that this week, I realized that in some ways that sounds a little bit like 2021, the great trouble of the pandemic, the shame of racism and injustice and human trafficking and modern day slavery, and then shame that we carry inside of ourselves, brokenness in our civic and political systems, as well as brokenness inside of us, destruction of coups and wars and lives being lost, and fire. That was an interesting one. So when I was working on this passage on Tuesday, I had just read um, on the news that the ancient giant sequoias on the Sierra Nevada range, they can grow up to 200 feet tall, and they can live for up to 3,000 years. So there were some giant sequoias, there are some giant sequoias right now in the Sierra Nevada that were living when Nehemiah wrote his journal. And I read this week that because of the fires and attributed to climate change, those great sequoias are at risk. And so I thought at first, fire's not happening to us, and then I realized it actually is. So it's not just the city of Jerusalem that is described in the words that were told to Nehemiah of great trouble, shame, brokenness, destruction, and fire. So what could have been Nehemiah's response to the report that he heard? He could have stuck his head in the sand and kind of figured, well, I have a good enough life as long as nobody poisons the wine. And he could have just said, I got a good job. I'll just live my life on my own. He could have reacted with kind of this low-grade constant anxiety and living a fearful life of kind of quiet desperation. He could have reacted by deconstructing his theology and saying either God doesn't exist or God doesn't love us or God's not able to do anything about it. Or Nehemiah could have, could have kind of decided, I'm a leader, I'm going to go get things done. He could have made plans to go there and get the problems solved. But Nehemiah didn't do any of those things. Verse 4 tells us Nehemiah's response to the great trouble, shame, brokenness, destruction, and fire in his city. He writes, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In the face of the troubles in his day, Nehemiah didn't jump up and get moving. Nehemiah sat down and got praying. He didn't jump up and get moving. He sat down and got praying. The first thing that Nehemiah did in response to the trouble of his day was he devoted himself to prayer. Prayer and dependence for Nehemiah, prayer and dependence on God, was not his last resort. It was his first response. So let me read you Nehemiah's prayer, and then I'm going to point out some ingredients in his prayer to inform our prayers, and then I'll tell you the tale of the second city. This is Nehemiah 1, verses 5 through 11. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, here's his prayer, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love 
with those who love him and keep his commandments? Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you... Let me find it. There we go. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, I will scatter... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was, Nehemiah informs us, I was cupbearer to the king. So let me point out to you some ingredients that I see in Nehemiah's prayer. It was clearly his first response and not his last resort. And that does raise a question right there for us. For us, is prayer our first response? Or is it what we think to do when nothing else we've done has worked? But prayer wasn't just Nehemiah's first response. Nehemiah's prayer models a persistent, a wholly persistent dependence on God. His prayer models a wholly persistent dependence on God. He prayed day and night, and we know from chapter 2, verse 1, that we'll get to in just a little bit, that he prayed for four months before he had any kind of an answer. Day and night, he wept and prayed for month after month. And he didn't give up until God answered his prayer. When's the last time that you persistently pleaded with God day and night for four months for anything? When's the last time you persistently cried out to God, not just for four months for something about you, but for things for other people? I wonder how many of my prayers are mere passing fancies. I don't even remember them two days after I prayed them. And I wonder how often I've treated prayer as a vending machine, to ask for something from God with the idea that I'm supposed to get it instantaneously, and when I don't, I stop praying. People of prayer like Nehemiah, they start with prayer and then they pray persistently until they receive a clear answer from God. So on a very, very practical note, if you want to see how, how well you are doing at persistent dependence on God, start a prayer journal. Do a prayer log. Start it from here and, and do it all the way through to the end of the year and see what you learn about your prayers. Nehemiah's prayer modeled holy, persistent dependence on God. Secondly, Nehemiah's prayer models holy confidence in God's compassion and God's power. Nehemiah didn't wonder whether God was able 
or whether God cared. He knew. He, he knew that God was the great and awesome God who kept his covenant of love. So he was absolutely convinced that God was able and that God cared. How can you increase your conviction that God cares and that God is able to respond? Because if we don't believe that God cares and that God is able, why would we pray? And some of the reasons why so many of us struggle with prayers, we don't really think God loves us enough, or if he does, that God's going to do anything about it. Number three, Nehemiah's prayer models a holy sadness for what is broken. He wept and cried and fasted as he prayed. The well-being of the people of God mattered more to him than his prestigious job in the court of the king. The mission of God mattered more to him than living a comfortable life because it was more comfortable to live in Susa than it was going to be to go to Jerusalem. And the work of ju and justice of God mattered more to him than all of the trappings of privilege. If someone listened to your prayers over four months, what would they conclude matters to you? If most of your prayers are about yourself, they're going to conclude that what matters most to you is you, and not others, and not the work of God, and not the mission of God. And do your prayers reveal a holy sadness over what is broken? Or are you sticking your head in the sand and hoping that it won't bother you and it won't mess up your life? Do your prayers reveal that you care and pray more about your well-being or more about the well-being of others? Nehemiah's prayer models holy sadness over what is broken. Number four, Nehemiah's prayer models holy confession and repentance. Nehemiah knew that sin mattered. Nehemiah knew that sins block the blessings of God. Not because God's some kind of a tyrant trying to keep us from enjoying life, but because God has given us guidelines and guardrails so that we stay within those guidelines and guardrails and we can live the joyful, purposeful, significant lives, lives that he has intended for us. He has given us those guidelines and guardrails so that we don't miss out on his blessings. And Nehemiah knew that sin mattered. And I have to tell you, it's rare um, in my ministry that anyone ever weeps over prayer either their own prayers or the prayers of others. Sometimes I'm meeting with people and I'm thinking, can't you see that God is broken by your sin? He wants you to step back into his guidelines and within his guardrails, and I can't find many people that care much about it. One of the reasons we don't pray very much is because our sins have been blocking the blessings of God and our prayers are not working. Nehemiah knew that sins mattered. And so he confessed them and he repented them of them. It is, I have to tell you, it's, it's probably a daily practice in my life to confess sins and to repent of them. The goal in my life is that as soon as I become aware of some way that I've stepped out of those guidelines, when I've, I've broken the, the guardrails that God has put there for my protection, the goal in my life is to immediately, sometimes it's like two seconds later, confess and own it and ask God to forgive me 
and ask God to help change me so that I don't do that again. When's the last time that you have seriously confessed and repented of your sins? And I want to encourage you, make it a daily practice. Don't go to bed at night without recounting and confessing and owning your sins so that you can be forgiven, so that you can experience the blessings of God. And did you notice that Nehemiah didn't just confess his own sins? Nehemiah actually confessed the sins of his people. Right now in the church, there are so many sins. Are you spending more time criticizing the church for its sins? Or are you spending more time confessing the sins of the church? Nehemiah spent his time not criticizing and complaining about everybody else, but confessing his sins and the sins of the church. Number five, Nehemiah's prayer models holy courage to speak up in fear. We know that Nehemiah was afraid because he tells us. So after four months of his praying and fasting, the king noticed that he was depressed. And so this is Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In the month of Nisan, which is our mid-March to mid-April, so it's four months later, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? Pretty good idea if you're the king to watch the cup prayer. Whenever he's sick, you might want to take warning. So why are you, is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Then, Nehemiah tells us, Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. Not only was the king his boss in his workplace, think of the most important boss where you work or professor where you teach or in your department, but the king was an absolute monarch. It was not good to disappoint or annoy the king. That could mean that you were so long cupbearer, long live the king. But the king was also the one who could make it possible for Nehemiah to do what his God had put into his heart to do. Had Nehemiah stayed in his fears, he would have kept his mouth shut and he wouldn't have spoken up. But because he was a person of prayerful, persistent dependence on God, he courageously spoke up in the face of his fear. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Good way to start. Why should, my, should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Bit of a risky move. What if he is, is not pleased with you? What if he doesn't give you the next raise? What if the king fires and replaces you? Maybe the reason that you don't speak up more often is because you are living more in fear than you are in faith. You are more concerned about what mere people will say or think than you are trusting that God will do great things. I wonder what great things have never been done in my life because I walked in fear and I didn't speak up in the face of that fear. And then the last ingredient that I want to mention this morning for Nehemiah's prayer is his holy imagination for what God can do. When Nehemiah courageously spoke up, 
King Artaxerxes says, what do you want? That was the answer to his prayer. What do you want? And I love Nehemiah's next short little sentence in, in verse 4. He says, I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. Not only did Nehemiah pray consistently for four months, but he also did this really quick shotgun prayer in the immediate situation. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. And listen, we know that he had imagination for what God could do, because listen to what Nehemiah asks for from the king. When the king said, what do you want? Nehemiah didn't say, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Um, I'll get back to you. He had already dreamed about the great things that could happen. So essentially, Nehemiah says, well, as long as you're asking, Art, um, buddy of mine, here's what I'd like. If it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, paid leave of absence, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I love this. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. He wants letters of, of safe passage for everybody that, king Artax that served King Artaxerxes from Susa to Jerusalem, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me, free of charge, timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. I'd like a free line of credit, unlimited, to do everything that I need to do, and I'd really like you to pay for it. That is an, a holy imagination of great things that God could do. And one of the lessons here is a small imagination of what God can do leads us to very small prayers. A great imagination of what God can do encourages us to ask for great things. Are you chronically asking God for things that are too small for him and too small for you? So we conclude the story of the first city with Nehemiah's statement that the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. That's the first tale, or the tale of the first city today, Jerusalem 446 BC with Nehemiah, a person of prayer. The second city that I want to tell you a story about is Coventry, England, as I said, in 1960, and with a whole community of prayer. So Coventry, England is in the West Midlands of England, north and a little bit west of London. City of Coventry in World War II was a, an industrial powerhouse, so much so that it became the target of bombings by Nazi Germany, the most destructive of which was November 14, 1940. It was the single most concentrated air raid on a British city, for 11 hours, 515 Nazi bomb bombers dropped over 510 tons of explosives, including a brand new bomb. They dropped 30,000 exploding incendiaries. The smell and the heat of the bombing reached all the way up 6,000 feet so that the German pilots could feel the heat and smell the burning. 
It was the largest inferno in Britain ever, ever, ever with acres of burning. The Germans actually coined a term for um, bombing of cities to completely destroy them. They coined the term after the city of Coventry. They called it Coventration, which meant destroying it, bombing it back to the Ice Age. So here's the center of Coventry after the air raid. Whoops, let's go find this. The... Nope, go back. That's the, the city center. It was utterly destroyed. And then this next one, go back to the cathedral. This is the Cathedral of Coventry, built in the 1300s, one of the three largest medieval cathedrals in Britain. And then this next picture, or two maybe, is going to be the cathedral after the bombing. There we go. King George VI is said to have wept when he stood and saw the bombed out cathedral. So what happened is after the war, um, they decided to rebuild. They decided to keep the old cathedral as a, a memorial to, to work towards world peace. And they decided to build a new cathedral next door to it. And so I think we got pictures. There's the old cathedral, which is the, the monument for um, reconciliation and peace. And then the next picture here is going to be the new cathedral. Coming up, is it there yet? There we go, there's the new cathedral from the spire, the remaining spire of the old cathedral. So in 1960, they had spent the intervening time clearing the rubble and building that new cathedral. In 1960, word came from the builders that within two to three years, the new cathedral would be fully built and would be ready to be consecrated. And so in early 1960, there was a small group of church leaders called the Monks of Kirby. Strange name, very small group, about eight, eight different um, leaders. And they were in an all-day prayer meeting together. They just decided, let's just, let's just have a, a period of silence and prayer and just, just talk to God. And after that time of prayer, they asked, what's everybody sensing? And one of the monks said that what he sensed was that a consecrated cathedral needed a consecrated people. And then they talked about that and thought about that. And as the monks talked and prayed about what they they prayed about what they heard, they then asked the Holy Spirit these two questions. One, what does it mean to be a consecrated people? And two, what, O Lord, creator of the universe, do you want the monks of Kirby to do now? And they sensed that the most important thing that they could do to help the people of Coventry become a consecrated people was to stop nearly everything else they were doing and for the next two to three years simply pray and listen to the Holy Spirit. They became convinced that prayer was not something that was supposed to be added to everything that they were doing. Prayer was the one thing that they were called to do. And that began a two to three year process of the entire diocese gathering together for prayer to ask the Holy Spirit what he wanted. And so let me read you some quotes. This is from a book called Fire in Coventry. 
fire was to refer to the fire of the bombing in 1940 and the fire of love and of the Holy Spirit. Here are some of the quotes from the book Fire in Coventry. We discovered that when a person listens, God still speaks. When a person obeys, God still works his miracles. We asked, what is the Spirit saying to the churches? As weekly meetings continued, Monday after Monday, the people grew less suspicious of each other. And they, as they knelt together in prayer, perhaps above all else, they began to know that they belonged to one another. We seemed to become a sort of fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Everyone asked, what kind of church would my church be if everyone in the church was just like me? We discovered that the Holy Spirit would not be stereotyped, nor would the Spirit be hurried. The more deeply people were involved, the more clearly God was calling them to go deeper still and to offer him the obedience of their whole lives. A couple more. During those days, the whole diocese became alive with the Spirit, and we became a family with a purpose. When men and women make themselves available to God together in love and prayer, then the Spirit who is already within them can break out and take control. These three danced together, love, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. And the last quote, the Holy Spirit had grasped hold of us. We began to know a fire of love burning inside us and a mighty rushing wind of prayer blowing through our towns and villages. The city of Jerusalem in 446 BC had Nehemiah, a person of prayer. The city of Coventry in England in 1960 had a community of prayer. The question for us, Cornerstone, is right now, will Boston in this season have a community of prayer because Cornerstone Church has set aside time not to go out and do things, not to try to, to fix all the problems, but to listen for what the Holy Spirit might do? What kind of a church could be birthed if we would pray first and not as a last resort? If we would listen to the Spirit and ask him, what does he want in our lives? And what does he want within Cornerstone Church? So I encourage you to add the ingredients of Nehemiah's prayers into your prayers. Holy, persistent dependence on God. Holy confidence in God's compassion and power. Holy sadness for what is broken. Holy confession and repentance of sin. Holy courage to speak up in the face of fear. And holy imagination for what our God can do. Will you pray with me? Father, forgive us for puny prayers. Forgive us for fickle prayers. Forgive us for vending machine prayers. Forgive us for lack of prayer. 
Holy Spirit, if you want to have a fresh wind of your presence in Boston, will you begin it with us right here? Whatever it is that you want to do, could you help us get glimpses of it so that we ache to join you in that? And would you help us at Cornerstone Church in this season to be devoted first to prayer, to persistent dependence upon you? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.